City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Uh, City Limits, and it's a fifth Wednesday of the month this month. We had promised last week we'd talk to Meg Williams from um, Friends of the Earth about water issues, and um, fortunately she's gone on gone on a break, but she'll be back shortly. So once she's back, we will get her on, because for nothing else, um, I would like to know exactly how the bloody darling water, whatever it's called, works because I've got absolutely no idea other than that it seems that the private system seems to have all sorts of rights over what is public property and what is uh, what is nature in fact. So uh, there you are. I'm Kevin Healy. Meg Kimber's on the show today as well. Karina's pressing the buttons. And later on in the second half, we're going to be talking though to Debbie Carruthers, who's from East Gippsland. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago about an EES, an environment effect inquiry into a mineral sands deposit down in Gippsland and we said we weren't too sure whether it was going to be good or bad environmentally. Well, apparently, according to locals, it's going to be pretty bad. So we'll talk to Debbie about that and what the locals are doing to uh, address the environment effects statement and uh, and get their submissions in. Okay, Meg, how are you this morning? Not too bad, Kevin. Hello? How are you? Oh, good. Okay. okay. Yes, I thought you had to think about that for a bit. Uh, <laughs> I'm okay. Well, I'll pour a bit of tea just to get that out of the way. There we are. That's done. And just look, well, there was one one very disturbing feature, and I'll throw this in as our stupid comment of the morning, but you'll be so sad to hear that with coronavirus and many of her estates being in London and, and around central London, the Crown Estate rents for the for Her Majesty have fallen substantially this year, and so she's she's down to a few billion apparently in in rent, which is pretty ordinary, isn't it, when you think about it? But on a more serious matter, last week the Immigration Minister Alan, or he's acting at the moment, but acting Immigration Minister Alan Tudge, a judge, Judge Geoffrey Flick in the uh, federal court said that in fact he had engaged in, accused him of engaging in criminal conduct because the judge ruled that an Afghani citizen who the government was trying to throw out of the country could in fact keep his visa and should be released from custody. But Tudge said he kept him locked up because he felt the tribunal which ordered his release had incorrectly applied the law, and um, Flick says this, in fact, was conduct which can only be described as criminal. So it's interesting to see what might arise out of that, but we have a federal minister, while people are attacking state ministers at the moment very strongly over COVID, a federal minister who uh, seems to have broken the law, which and, and a federal court judge huh. that said just that, which is interesting. Uh, also last week, of course, we once again saw another fire that went for several hours in the Melbourne's northwestern suburb. As we talked last week to Helen Vandenberg about the toxic waste dump yeah. at Tullamarine, we made the point that none of these things are ever located, of course, in the leafy, better suburbs of Melbourne. And yet again, we have out in the these suburbs um, out at Buller a, uh, another fire. And this had, in fact, this particular tip was ordered shut by the EPA, which doesn't do this too often, but uh, two years ago because of fires on the site and exposed asbestos and, and waste drawn around it, strewn around it, but it's still there. And the uh, fire went for quite a fair bit one day last week and black smoke everywhere and residents within a 5k radius told to keep their windows shut. So the attacks on those suburbs and the problems of these places just continue. Do we know what caused the no, fire, Kevin? We don't. It just happened. They, these things seem to just happen, don't yeah. they? But happen. look, having yeah. mentioned having mentioned talking to uh, Helen Vandenberg last week, it's worth commenting, relating to our to our, because of our interview. But we talked about the fact that the chief yeah. executive had come under attack for bullying, etc. 
And uh, last Thursday, mm. ComCare, which is the federal government workers' compensation scheme, their workplace health and safety agency, have opened an investigation into CleanAway uh, following those accusations of people being bullied in the workplace. So there's now an inquiry going on into that. But also it was revealed mm. that they're also being investigated by the New South Wales EPA after they blitzed 27 CleanAway facilities in June this year in an unannounced series of inspections, and they're the best ones because uh, at least they haven't got time to clean up. And it followed two chemical spills in Queanbeyan. So again, they're being investigated by the EPA over those matters. So CleanAway is certainly getting into more and more trouble all the time. But further to that, last week it was revealed, and this is really interesting because we did mention last week that there were allegations that they weren't keeping their, to save money, like not doing anything about the Tullamarine toxic waste dump. And they were letting maintenance and work on their yeah. vehicles, which carry around this, this toxic waste uh, and all sorts of waste too well. Last week, it came out that they only stopped charging excess weight fees to customers after a federal government investigation found the company was using faulty scales on its trucks, but did not tell some of its largest oh. customers they had potentially been wrongly charged. And it turns out that big customers, yeah. a lot of big customers apparently are charged by the weight of what goes on. And the National Measurement Institute, which runs these things, last year found a high number of CleanAway's fleet of front-lift garbage trucks did not have scales that were accurate or calibrated correctly, which some employees said was as high as 50% of all front-lift vehicles. And the um, company said several CleanAway employees familiar with the NBI probe said the company took a little while to turn off the fees and did not tell large customers that its trucks had failed the audit. It then instructed employees to ask customers to consent to more frequent collections or increased bin size to, quote, recoup lost revenue from not having excess weight fees, according to those employees. I felt this unethical as we were not being honest to the customers and is in direct contradiction with the CleanAway company values. One employer said, well, I'm not sure about it. I think it probably reflects their values. But anyway, <laughs> they, said, they, said they, they said there was a concern throughout the organization that customers would demand credits if they learned they had been overcharged and so they're not going to let them know. But the fact that it's now appeared in the paper probably means they're a little bit aware of it. But just a bit of news there about, like um, about CleanAway. Yeah. Mm. Um, so um, the clean-away problems just continue, unfortunately. And, and in the meantime, of course, they're not going to spend a lot of money, as we know, doing anything about the problems for the people living around the toxic waste dump at Tullamarine. Yeah. Kevin, you know what? I almost, almost bought the Herald Sun on the weekend. Gee, there's a, my goodness. Are you feeling okay? <laughs> I was in this um, IGA. And um, I saw the headline that Daniel Andrews had given his evidence at the inquiry into the quarantine hotel accommodation coronavirus spreading situation. And I, but I hesitated and I bought the Australian instead. And I've been going reading through everything. I suppose you've been keeping up with this too. Well, I, I, the Australian, I rarely get. I mean, it's Murdoch, it's sort of his, his herald son absolute rubbish made sound a bit more sensible, but it's still rubbish, I think, in the Australian, if you don't mind my saying so, but yeah. Yeah. At least with the Herald Sun, you know you the bias is really clear and really obvious. But yeah, in the Australian, I know what you mean. But um, it, it, I think it well, doesn't really matter which paper I got, but I just wanted to no, no. hear about the um, inquiry. Another item that uh, I found interesting this week, and I'm sure you'll find interesting, because we've been critical over the time of vice-chancellors giving in to government, particularly under the Howard era and under this government, um, whenever universities are cut or when a Howard was trying and did succeed in turning them into businesses rather than educational institutions. But this week, yeah. Michael Spence, who's vice-chancellor at Sydney, uh, he came out and said the package put up by the government, this one which will, of course, cause um, art students to pay a lot more and try and get people into so-called job-ready graduates, 
would cut 5.8% off the revenue universities get for each student and $2 billion from research funding from the sector overall. He says base funding for math students would fall by 17% and for engineering, science and surveying by 16%. At the same time, fees for the humanities would rise between 20 and 30%. This bill is riddled with perverse effects, many of which will have a direct impact on the welfare of Australia's young people, Dr Spence said. It punishes students for choosing to study the social sciences and humanities. The best research suggests that the core skills that these disciplines offer will future-proof our students with the skills in critical thinking, problem-solving and effective oral and written communication that will be transferable to the jobs of the fourth industrial revolution. And he goes on to say that students generally do what they want to do and so it won't encourage them to do the courses anyway. So he's at last the Vice-Chancellor's come out and been pretty critical of government over the whole thing. Mm. Oh, finally. But yeah, I mean, I don't think they, the government ever really, I mean, they say that at, that it is um, designed to encourage students into particular areas where they need employees, but their own research contradicts that according to the National Tertiary Education Union. So um, I think we can, I don't know if I'm being a bit cynical, Kevin, but I think it was probably about more about profit than anything else. Oh, you're such a cynical <laughs> little person, Meg. I know, I know. <laughs> oh dear, I didn't know where that came from. <laughs> well, goodness me. <laughs> There's also figures that show that the government has, in fact, you know, the the, the slashing of uh, of funding in the same submission. The Sydney University said the government share of the cost of student education had fallen. This is these are extraordinary figures from 90% in 1990 to 30% in 2020. Yeah, incredible. That's a massive cut. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. it's just dreadful when it's supposed to be public education. There are some yeah. degrees now at university that are 97% student funded and only get, or 93% or something like that. So almost completely private at a public university, yeah. in effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. bloody awful. But yeah. the government has has ways of spending money nonetheless because uh, this mm. is a story that hasn't had a lot of legs, I don't think, but it might when Parliament meets again. But it mm -hmm. came out also last week, the Auditor-General's report blasted the ethical standards of the federal government for overpaying $26.7 to a billionaire property owner for land slated for the long-term development of a second airport in Sydney's west. Now, the, the land wasn't required for 32 years, but they wanted to get in and buy it. If they'd waited a few months longer, in fact, they could have picked it up much cheaper because mm. it would have been just a, a normal acquisition. But they, mm -hmm. the, the scathing report revealed that the Department of Infrastructure wrote off 90% of the building less of the purchase price less than a year later, and the seller was Leppington Pastoral Company, controlled by billionaire dairy farmers Tony and Ron Perrick, P-E-R-I-C-H Perich or Perrick, who in January this year ranked 36 on the rich list with an estimated fortune of more than two billion, and separate to that. They spent ten million for an underpass connecting two properties controlled by these billionaires, mm. um, and more importantly, it's called the Leppington Triangle, the land they bought. But the Leppington Triangle was sold to the Commonwealth eighteen for about thirty million, written down to three million eleven months later. So they wrote down the actual value mm. by twenty seven million, mm. and then leased mm. it back to the seller based on the value of nine hundred and twenty thousand. So these people have wow. made absolute fortunes out of it. Um, wow. They've also they've also planned uh, rather than put a, a road through the property of the people who sold it to them to put a road through the no go area, which is supposed to be part of that uh, part of the the area they they shouldn't you know the clear case for no go for the proposed road to many issues. But it's part of the um, the area that's designed to protect people on the ground in the event of an accident, and that's an area where they've decided to put a road as well. So it, the whole thing is is just absolutely outrageous. But you'll be pleased to know that two mm. days after those stories broke last week, the mm. the million the billionaires who got all the money 
came out and said it was a fair and reasonable price. So that seems to be oh. that seems to solve it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have thought for them it was pretty fair and very reasonable, um, yeah, but not for the taxpayer. No, that whole thing stinks. And I think you're right, Kevin. I think it will grow in. Um, hopefully, it will grow in people's awareness about this will increase because it's an issue of integrity of governance and it's a good example of why the federal government needs an independent um, integrity commission, don't you think? In fact, uh, someone came out and said just that in, um, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the result of this, um, yep. that uh, in fact it's a good example of why, in fact it was Starley Stegall, the um, independent MP, uh, yeah. she called on Attorney General Christian Porter to pass legislation before the parliament to establish a federal integrity commission. This deal fails the integrity test. It deserves a deeper look, only there is nobody to investigate it, she said. So, yeah. Oh, man. It's just so obvious, isn't it? Like, it's just the whole yeah. thing. The whole, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. We've also, in recent weeks, of course, talked about AMP. We've had Clean Away. We've got our eight mates at AMP. There's been Rio, mm -hmm. of course. There's, they're, they're all mm -hmm. building up these wonderful, great, uh, good corporate citizens. Um, AMP has um we in recent weeks we talked about of course the issue of sexual harassment there and the culture inside yeah. that company but there was also a report came out last week by a mob called stock spot that that does reports on the various superannuation uh, bodies mm. and mm. you'll be pleased to know amp has been named australia's worst performing superannuation provider on fees and returns <laughs> And um, and it, it has the highest number of so-called fat cat funds with 12 products featuring on the list of those with relatively high fees and lackluster returns to members. Um, mm -hmm. AMP's Capital Dynamic Markets Fund, an active exchange traded fund listed on the uh, stock exchange, had the worst return profile of all the funds analysed with a return of minus 2.2%. So workers in that oh, fund are actually losing money. They were actually oh losing money, and often, oh. you know, the, the the several the several so-called financial experts they get on the news as to comment whenever something happens uh, include a bloke called Shane Oliver, who's a bit of a regular, and he he actually manages this fund that got a return of minus two point two percent. So his <laughs> musings on the economy and expert opinion are certainly worth listening to. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, and the and the stock spot says that this is the first time over the eight years we've done this report that we've ever seen a balanced fund with negative five year returns. Um, the, the performance of this dynamic asset allocation fund puts to rest the idea that chief economists have any edge in timing markets or asset classes. Super members would have been much better off ignoring AMP's economic views and simply investing into an index fund, etc., etc. But there you are. So AMP's in the news again. Oh wow! Well, they say all all news is, is good news, don't they? What does it say? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> no idea. What I think it's no news is good news. <laughs> no news is good news, but also don't know like any. Yeah. <laughs> whatever, whatever. But anyway, uh, that's not good news for the for the people in those funds anyway. And uh, probably, yeah. but one assumes that even though it was minus two point two, AMP and and Jane Oliver and Co still took their their fees out of it, of course. I would definitely uh, assume that. Yeah. And of course, giving money to, to enterprise, we've mentioned Qantas in recent weeks and the way they seem to play everyone around in getting money out of um, out of JobKeeper and they got free ads in in all the newspapers last week and we mentioned they're also mm -hmm. playing off the states against each other for the relocation of their headquarters. And Andrew's here has said, we think that we have a very attractive offer to make and we'll work through that to try to have, have as many jobs as we possibly can in our city and state. And so they're offering all sorts of incentives for um, for Qantas to come to Melbourne. So again, we're going to be subsidising Qantas. And yet, yeah. it also was released this week, came out last uh, Thursday. Qantas workers are owed thousands of dollars in back pay after a court held the airline had been misusing JobKeeper 
in a way that in ways that meant it is pocketing parts of the wage subsidy. The federal wow. court on Thursday rejected the airline's argument that it could use workers' earnings paid in arrears to reduce the top-up amount it must make to get their pay to the minimum $1,500 a fortnight required under JobKeeper. The landmark mm -hmm. judgment from a case brought by the airline unions means Qantas will likely have to back pay hundreds of airline workers engaged during the pandemic. The decision will mm -hmm. also have ramifications for all other companies receiving JobKeeper and paying staff in, in arrears and experts say it could affect their bottom line. Transport Workers Union National Secretary Michael Kane said Qantas had been caught out taking taxpayers' money while ripping off its workers. Uh, and he goes on to say this is an important win for Qantas workers who have had their pay rated by senior management in a disgraceful abuse of the JobKeeper scheme. These workers have endured systematic wage theft at the hands of an out-of-control management. So Qantas mm. continues also to be in the news. Mm. Um, and... Well, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, it was revealed that 25 Australian stock exchange companies that received the JobKeeper wage subsidy uh, paid executive bonuses totaling $24 million while getting the, um, the, the show. So, they're, you know, where, mm. where do they, if, they, if they can pay bonuses, why do they need JobKeeper seems to be the, uh, the situation. Extremely concerning behaviour. Yeah. Also, this week, uh, well, last week it started, but this week some of the big shots like James Packer are going to appear, this inquiry into Crown Resorts, which is looking at whether it's a, a right and proper party to run the Barangaroo Casino, which is scheduled to open in, um, in December in Sydney. And part of the evidence that came out in the first week last week was that there were instructions the financial guru, Michael Johnston, sought to alter Crown's forecast, which could have benefited uh, James Packer, um, mm. because, and he says that the, the inquiry heard that Johnston had suggested to Crown's then Chief Financial Officer, Ken Barton, several adjustments to his projections out to the 2022 financial year. And most of the changes to the prediction would have had a positive influence on the figures. Now, this was a couple of weeks before at that stage, although it fell through, Packer was planning to sell a large part of his shares to a Hong Kong company, which has led to this inquiry in the first place. So it would have boosted the, the figures for the, for the sale. Uh, however, Mr. Barton, now Crown's chief executive, did not recall whether he made the alterations. Now, it's amazing in these inquiries the number of people whose memories seem to just go to pieces when they get into that witness that's, box. That, that's what I'm thinking about the inquiry into hotel quarantine. Nobody knows who who no. knows the in, the private contractors, the private security guards. I'm like, nobody knows. That's amazing. No one knows. It was just it was just like topsy, really. I mean. On a certain day, these private people just turned up out of the blue. No yeah, one even knew, yeah. and they and they went to the right place, which was great. Oh, yeah, yeah, isn't that yeah. funny? I mean, <laughs> yeah. the Department of Jobs, which I have to admit I had never heard of, Jobs and something and something. Um, they're like, oh yeah, we signed the contract, but I don't know who did it. And then somebody, the Department of uh, Health and Human Services, took over the management, and they were like, well, we didn't sign it. So, but still, they found someone to take the blame, even though no one could yeah. remember what happened. Well, I would have, I would have thought the simple solution would be to go to the contract and work your way back from whoever signed it, um, yes, and indeed. find out who was at the top in terms of making the decision. But that that seems exactly. to be too simple, apparently. No, we yeah. need a whole inquiry, and at the end of the inquiry, That's right. nobody knows. Yeah, I mean, contracting out, one assumes there's a contract. And <laughs> yes, indeed. Therefore, been. therefore, they should be able to trace the contract. But anyway, let's uh, yeah. let's go. So the, the three companies that got the job then subcontracted to fourteen other companies. So it's an interesting situation, isn't it? It is indeed. You will also be pleased to hear because mm. Freehills, they could Herbert Smith Freehills these days, but Freehills for years which is the biggest anti-worker law firm in the country, the law firm mm. that drew up work choices for the Howard government. Mm. And they're, you know, they're very, very anti-worker. Well, here's a, here's a shock. They shortchanged mm. some law graduates by more than $20,000 in the past year because the graduates say they make work incredibly long hours. In fact, 
there was a um, King and Wood Malice, another one of the big, big top end of town law firms. They were investigated by works by safe work over grueling work hours during the Banking Royal Commission. And Herbert Smith Freeman and Freehills had said it, it certainly wasn't underpaying its workers. Well, it turns out it's because even though they get reasonably well paid as graduates, if you take if you stretch out the hours they actually worked and then divide it by what they get, they fall under the minimum. Mm. And so that's how, that's how they get underpaid. And so they've been forced to pay up about 20 grand. And I suppose similar, they say that it's up to them. Do they claim that it's up to the individual how much they work and if they're behind, that's their fault? Or are they just... Oh, no. Well, I think... Well, maybe that's what they say, but of course yeah, the graduates so. feel that they've got to work these incredible hours they're forced to work because yeah. they're really in there to, um, you know, they've got to, they've got to move on. And um, yep. if they, if they yep. don't do it, I suppose their career hits a brick wall. Uh, other yeah. big, other big end of town companies, as Hearst, Gilbert and Tobin, and DLA Piper, uh, also were hit this year. Gilbert, Gilbert and Tobin, two hundred ninety thousand they owed in back pay, and as Hearst, individual back pay exceeded fifteen thousand dollars. So um, these mm-hmm. big law firms, um, which advise government on how to keep workers in their place, are uh, uh, running yeah. into a bit of trouble as well. Interesting. Yes. Oh. Yes. But also in the past um, week, the the um, interestingly enough, um, last um, about a week ago, in fact, I think it was um, last Tuesday or Wednesday, the small business, but the Council of Small Business Organisations said we should have a simple all-in rates and in, uh, pay rates for workers and make part-timers more flexible. And they pointed out that uh, this would uh, this would allow them, of course, as, you, as they always say, to mm. employ more workers. And mm. under its small business award proposal, the quantum of the all hours rate would be determined by a formula that would be revisited every year by the minimum wage panel. So that would indicate they intend to pay the minimum wage to these mm-hmm. workers as well. Mm. But then, surprise, surprise, the very next day, the Industrial Relations Minister, Christian Porter, uh, came out and said, we, um, we, he said, we should introduce simplified all-in pay rates for weekdays and weekends and a solution to award conditions that pay part-timers overtime for hours beyond their set roster, but which discourage employers from offering extra hours. Now, that's bad for jobs and job growth, and that's bad for the business, he said, in relation to the part-time conditions. And I would have thought, Okay, it might be bad for the business, but it ain't too good either for the workers who suddenly aren't getting overtime or penalty rates anymore and who are um, being considered as, um, in many cases, just as casuals anyway. So just just there you are. Hard to believe that the mm. one employer group comes out and next day the minister comes out and supports them. Interesting, isn't it? Wow. Isn't it? Someone's yeah. that, like been in conversation or something, but I guess they haven't because governments are pretty independent, aren't they? Uh, totally. I hope you don't think. Other than, no, unless you're the Victorian Labor government. Now, (laughs) you mentioned earlier, no, this is true, you mentioned earlier about uh, finding someone responsible, but but a bloke called Patrick Durkin wrote in the Financial Review last week, I don't know much about him, but he's obviously obviously quite conservative, because he opens opens the article by saying, the false dichotomy between business and unions read its ugly head at Victoria's hotel quarantine inquiry. Now, the false dichotomy between business and unions as if there's no differences, we're all in it together, which is what Bob Hawke tried to tell people. But what he's attacking is that um, confidential crisis cabinet documents showed the Andrews government's deep engagement with unions on which private security firms to use was a key priority. Work was to be directed to trades hall preferred firms in an extension of something called the Working for Victoria program. And they they said they wanted simply to find out from trade, or the government's argument was they just wanted to find out from trades hall who were decent employers who uh, whom they mm. could hire. Now, again, it goes to if they were doing that, someone must have known they were going to hire them, of course, which is very mm-hmm. interesting, given that given that mm. no one seems to know who did hire them. But the, mm. it's quite it's, it's the usual terrible argument that you 
if, if they go to Trades Hall to find something out, then they're making a mm. big mistake. And as you just said, of course, the Liberal governments would mm. never go to business mm. to uh, get their point of view on industrial matters. So, Meg, of course. Indeed. Indeed. Mm. Um, Kevin, I believe our guest is, is here. Oh, good, good. We could take a little break and we'll be back after the break on yeah. Two Limits on 3CR. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Yarra Bicycle Users Group Radio, 10am every Monday morning on Community Radio 3CR. Also live streaming on the web and weekly podcasts at 3cr.org.au. So listen in for the very latest bicycle stories, news and views from Melbourne and around the cycling universe. Listen in. Okay, back on City Limits, and we've got Debbie Carruthers on the line. Debbie's um, from East Gippsland, and we mentioned a couple of weeks ago there was an advertisement for an environment effects study into a mineral sands project in, in Gippsland, and we weren't too sure whether it was going to be good or bad environmentally, so we decided to check it out. Debbie, um, is it going to be good for the environment, or are there a few problems with us? Oh, good morning. Yes, it's going to be going to be a lot of issues in relation to the environment with this proposed mineral sands mine and it's deeply concerning to the community but it also should be deeply concerning to anyone living in the Melbourne and broader Victorian area because the produce fresh vegetables that they eat are most likely to be coming from this area and this this mine is very close to that vegetable growing area. So just to give some perspective to people about where it is. So if they're familiar yeah. with Bansdale, Bansdale in East Gippsland. So this um, proposed mine is about 20 kilometers from, from Bansdale. It's in an area called Glen Allerdale. And people will probably be familiar with the Mitchell River and the Mitchell River floodplain or the Lindano Valley, Mitchell River Valley, which is where a prime agricultural area is um, for the state and, and one of the large horticultural growing areas. So this mine is going to be sitting on top of a plateau above the Mitchell River. So it's as close as 350 metres from the Mitchell River and 500 metres from the commencement of this, this vegetable growing area, which spans for about 4,000 hectares is where the, the, the size of the, of the vegetable area. This proposed mine is going to be 1,675 hectares. So that's like close to 16 square kilometres. Um, they're going to be mining 13 square kilometres of that area and digging to a depth of up to 45 metres. And, of course, with mineral sands mines, there are concerns about radioactive and cancer-causing substances in the materials being mined. And so with the fine dust that will be created, um, that is going to blow in the wind and that's going to land on the vegetables that um, people will be eating from that area. So that's, that's the sort of nutshell of where, where it is and what is the, the issue of concern. But there's a whole range of environmental issues associated with that. Yeah. What's the company involved in this? That's a very good question because the business <laughs> itself has actually changed many times since the project started. This, about six years ago, the community went to an information evening. And it's been about four years since this um, proposal has been the subject of an environment effects statement. And the reason why the environment effects statement started is because of the many environmental concerns with it 
and the number of complex issues. And at that stage, the company was called Calbar Resources. It was a fully Australian-owned company. Then it went to a 90% Australian-owned. Then um, last year, it moved to a company called Calbar uh, Limited. And then Calbar Limited, in more recent times, has become Calbar Operations Proprietary Limited. It's a $2 company that's been created, and that company is now 94% foreign-owned. So we've gone from 100% to 94%, 100% Australian to 94% foreign-controlled. As a Dutch company, there's also a joint venture partnership with a subsidiary of a Chinese company, Chinelco, which is also in the mix. And Debbie, is this a state forest or state government-owned land or is it private land that this is being proposed upon? That's an important question because this is actually on private land. It's on private okay. land, so it means that the landholders have to sign land access agreements. And what's a bit insidious about the whole thing is that some steps have been taken by the company in working with council officers in setting up what's called like a draft planning amendment and that's part of the EES and what it does is it effectively takes the control away from some of the landholders over their own land um, but um, and this is land that's outside of the mine footprint so there's there are bore fields there's water pipelines there's road diversions and those road diversions are cutting through private land and people are losing the control over their private land because it's, it's being done as a as a planning amendment. And that's the, very concerning. The other thing that's really significant about this is that there are a lot of people who live near where this mine is proposed to be. Um, the company is, is saying, they're referring to them as sensitive receptors, and uh, that's because they're in what's called the impact zone, although sometimes that's referred to as a buffer zone around the mine but they're, in, in, they're directly in the impact zone. So this mine's going to be operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in what is currently zoned agricultural and residential. So there are more than 80 residences within two kilometers of the boundary of the mining license. And that's a lot of people who are going to be exposed to, to dust, um, to noise, to light, given it's going to be 24 seven. Um, it's also the, the animals that are in the area that, you know, are going to be impacted by, by those um, activities. And the thing in this area, too, is that the people there use tank water. And so there's a risk of dust, which goes on their roofs, which then enters into their tank water, which then can potentially impact on, on their fresh drinking water. I should also say when I'm talking mm. about water that the mine is only three and a half kilometers from the Wood Glen Reservoir, which is the main drinking water, other than for people who are on tank water, this is the drinking water that is, is used by all of East Gippslanders. So being that close to the mine, the dust will inevitably make its way. Because as we know, dust travels a long distance. We've seen dust storms from the Mallee um, reaching right through Melbourne into the country and so, you know, dust is a real issue and only three and a half kilometres away is not very far. Mm. And you mentioned that it's also very close to the Mitchell River. Yes. Um, any idea about what the impacts will be on that river and, and what it's, how the river is currently part of people's lives in that area? Yeah, well, the, the Mitchell River, people who would be holidaying in the area would, would know about the Mitchell River as being part of the Gippsland Lakes, Ramsar, Protected area it's the it's the largest lake system of it if it's type in the southern hemisphere and it's protected because of the migration of, of birds in in the area um and it's on that's an international convention but more importantly to the people of, of melbourne and elsewhere around victoria and other places it's a place where people come to fish where they come to boat mm. um they come to swim and enjoy um, enjoy that lifestyle, particularly in, in the, the summer months. So it's, it's important from a tourism standpoint. It's also important from the standpoint of water because the, the water that people get to drink from the Wood Glen Reservoir comes out of the Mitchell River. 
Um, it's pumped from the Glen Allerdale pumping station. And that's the same pumping station that the mine is proposing to use to access its water. And anyone who has a knowledge about mining would be aware that a lot of water is usually required for mining, but in particular for mineral sands mines because of the dust and because of the toxic nature of the dust and the need to ensure that they keep the dust down. So the, the Calbar operations, the mining proponent is looking to, to get access to three gigaliters. So that's three billion liters of water a year for up to 20 years, which is the life of the proposed life of the mine. So that's a lot of water, um, three gigaliters, three billion liters a year. And they're also proposing to put 19 dams on this plateau above the Mitchell River. Mostly that's to stop any sediment that might escape um, into the river. But if there's a failure of any of those spillways, all of that will go directly into the Mitchell River. The Mitchell River is also used to irrigate crops. So that vegetable industry I mentioned before, they access water from the Mitchell River to irrigate the crops. So there's risks of turbid water. The water is used to make ice that's used to transport the vegetables. Depending on the season, there's about either 30 to 50 semi-trailer truckloads of vegetable produce that leaves the Lindenau Valley to go either interstate or, or into Melbourne. And obviously that has to be packed with, with ice for some of those um, vegetables that need to, uh, to be packed in ice. Mm -hmm. And so that, that also comes out of the, the Mitchell River. So the Mitchell River is vital to, um, to, to fishing, to boating, to drinking water, to irrigation water, um, and to, to the enjoyment of, of people who come to grow and, and love. It's the last wild river in Victoria is my mm. understanding. So it, it's pretty significant and it's heritage listed. Wow. Yeah, the, the antenna sort of went up when I looked at the, uh, the advertisement and it said about the Ramsar wetlands and, uh, and also planning changes that were required and they always worry you. But with that amount of water, what impact will that have on the river? I mean, can the river survive that environmentally? Well, it's a really important question. And what isn't being factored is importance of environmental flows because that's important for the, for the mm. Gippsland Lakes. The other area of water to talk about is the, the Perry River, which also feeds into the other end of the Gippsland Lakes, the, the western end of the Gippsland Lakes. The Mitchell River feeds in from the sort of north northeastern end of, of, of the lake system. There's a proposed tailings dam, which is going to be nearly one square kilometre, 20 metres high, and that's sitting on top of a ridge, and that's on top of the Perry River catchment and the Mitchell River catchment. So it feeds into creeks that then go into the Perry River that then feed into the Gibson Lakes. So potentially you have leaching of the tailings into the Perry River system as well as into the Mitchell River. So we're not just talking about sediment, we're also talking about leaching of the tailings in, into the water courses and through that watershed. So there's a potential double impact on the Gippsland Lakes because of that um, tailings dam. And that the area in question is subject to flooding, particularly from East Coast lows. And there have been several flooding events over the years um, where high volumes of waters, water flows through. So you can imagine these 19 dams and the potential for a disaster occurring. Absolutely. Yeah. Debbie, before we get on to the question of the environmental effects statement and the um, feedback from the community, can you give us a quick overview of what mineral sands mining is for those who are listening and are not aware of this? Okay. It's a good question because people say, well, mineral sands, we, we need the products that come from that because they support modern technology for you know, batteries and electric cars uh, the lithium is in, important mm. from it. Um, so the products that we're talking about is ilmenite, rutal, uh, zircon, and, and no one questions the importance of those things. And often that's used as an argument. Well, if you use modern technology, you, you can't say, mm. you know, we shouldn't be getting the product. The point is that this is a highly dangerous and inappropriate location for a mine of, of this nature, which has those radioactive properties because that's inherent mm. in the materials being mined and cancer mm. causing substances silica dust which is is known as a um, problem for for lung disease so 
these mines need to be in remote locations, not close to where so many people live, where so many people work and farm. There's a school nearby, less than two kilometers away. Um, there's two other schools that are within that sort of five, roughly 5K distance primary schools. And dust, as we've said before, travels, travels a long distance. So we need the materials, but there are lots of other mineral sands mines across Australia and around the world that are in more remote locations that are not close to people where they can cause danger to public health and cause irrevocable issues with, with our important waterways. We need water to sustain life. We need food. We know that there's less and less land being available for growing crops and we need the water for the environment we need the water for growing food we don't need the water for for this mine in this location we need to protect the Mitchell River and and the Perry River the Gippsland Lakes and these mines should be in other locations not this is just not the right place for them for a mine Rio Tinto yeah. um, many years ago had had this license and and they they pass the license on and that could well have been because they recognised that the location was a dangerous location. And what's the local council's position on the planning amendments that they're trying to get through? Well, it was a motion that was before our council, the East Gippsland Shire Council in December of 2018. That motion was actually supported by council and the, the motion was for the council to write to the Minister for Planning, because it's the Minister for Planning who has responsibility for the EES, to write to him and the other government ministers to express the concern of the community about this mine. And then that motion was rescinded by council at its next meeting. Um, there were a couple of councillors who were missing from that first meeting and at the subsequent meeting they were there and they voted to rescind the motion. But what was interesting about that was that they said, the motion should be rescinded because they wanted to wait until the EES came out to take a position and so that it wasn't going to preempt other decisions that might occur in the future. But what's happened in the meantime is really interesting because we've now seen in the EES document, there's a draft planning amendment scheme and that's dated October 2018, which predates that council meeting. So the community saying, oh, were council officers actually working on this before and, and then not disclosing it to to the councillors themselves? Were the councillors aware of this happening? So we're just currently looking into that at the moment because that's only just come to our attention. But what it means is that this um, planning amendment um, will go through if the EES gets through with the ministers. So it means that those landholders then have no control over what happens with their land because it's, it's been given up through this process. So that's deeply concerning to, to the community and obviously to the people who are directly impacted by that. So we're waiting to see what happens. So it's probably enough, enough said on that. Yeah. Well, one assumes, though, that the inquiry itself will ask the council its position on that, won't it? So the council's got to come up with some answer. Yes, but we're in a really interesting situation at the moment because the councils are in caretaker mode. The EES was released on the 3rd of September for public submissions. Public submissions close on the 29th of October, so that's a period of 40 business days. Caretaker mode started on the 22nd of September, so the council will not have had an opportunity to read and write a response in that time period. And therefore, um, we've written to the Minister for Planning to say that the EES process, the public exhibition, needs to be stopped and we need to wait until the council is able to participate, which means the nominations will be, not nominations, sorry, the results of the election are going to be announced on the 13th of November, um, which is after public submissions close. So the council won't be able to participate at all. And they're a key stakeholder in the process. So we're, we've written to the Minister for Planning to say he needs to suspend the public exhibition process now and wait until the councils can participate. So it's not just the East Gippsland Shire Council, it's also the Wellington Shire Council that is involved because it cuts across two, two um, shires. So we're waiting for a response to that, but we, we wrote to the minister a few weeks ago to, to ask that that public exhibition be suspended. Mm. And there's 10,000 pages, I believe, of, of documents in relation to the EES the company's put out. 
you've somehow got to absorb all that in a, in a very short time to put your submissions in, I assume. That's right. And it's, it's really unfair to the community. The company's had four years to get its, its EES together and all the documents in the EES are sourced and funded. All the, all these, the consultants in the EES, it's all funded and sourced by the mining company. There's no independent information in there at all. And so the community then gets 40 business days to read 10,000 pages. So that's 250 pages a day for each of those 40 business days and then to be able to write a submission and it's highly technical there are a whole range of chapters on biodiversity there's aboriginal cultural heritage that is impacted um, by this there's um, water issues there's the horticultural issues there's air quality um, there, you know public health issues there are a whole range of, of matters um, that people um, have to digest the impact on other agriculture in the area and there's only 40 days to do it so the community then has to fund experts to go mm. to the public inquiry to have those experts counter the information that's that's in the submission so individuals write in and it's really important that people do that because this is about people power and people can stop things if we look at what happened with fracking that was all about community opposition to it and, and the community forced the government to, to stop fracking, which, which it did. It put in place a permanent legislated ban that's enshrined in the constitution. And it's important for people to stand up to this and to say this is in the wrong location. It's too dangerous. We need to protect all those valuable assets for our environment and that it, it's, um, it's important that people do that and, and possibly help to, to fund our experts because it's the community that has to pay for that that's that's the ridiculous part of this we have to pay pay to find those experts to counter what's in those reports because those reports are, are all from the mining company that's so frustrating Debbie are you part of a group there um, in your community aren't you but anyone can get in touch with you get more information about this do you have a website or a Facebook group yes we do so the group is called mine free Glen Allodale there's a Facebook page. So you find the Facebook page by um, having mine with a capital M with a hyphen and then a small F for free and then Glen Allerdale. There's also a, a website which has lots of information on it, which is Mind Free Glen Allerdale, all one word, lowercase, mindfreeglenallerdale.org. And if anyone is, is able to help with even the smallest bit of money towards helping us to fund those experts, we also make maths as a fundraising activity. So to raise money to, to fund the experts and all that information is, is available on the website. So um, I can pass that information on to people um, if you want, want to find out more. We can put that information on our website, 3cr.org.au slash city limits and we'll also include it on the podcast so anyone who's listening to this by a podcast can check the blurb in the podcast description of this episode because it's not just an issue for the local community at all debbie is it it's for all victorians and probably all australians our waterways are under constant threat from industrial action and um, we do have an opportunity to make a difference by so i, I suppose what you're aiming for is people to get engaged, offer financial support if they can, and for people to make submissions, even though you're hoping to have that time frame extended, it's still important for people to make a submission um, if they can. Would that that's be correct? Great. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for all that. That's terrific. And I'll also provide the link to um, submissions, which is basically just writing mm. a letter and just saying to people, what do you think the impacts are and why you think those impacts are unacceptable? And because this is an issue that affects um, everyone across the community, it's, it's important that um, people have their say and, and to make their concerns know because the only way that government, the only way this will be stopped is if the government sees that there's a lot of community opposition to it and that it, it's, it's not just a local issue, it's, it's a wider community issue. And that we do all have a responsibility to be, be protecting the environment and to look at what developments are appropriate in, in um, certain areas and which ones aren't. And this is certainly not, not one that's in, in an appropriate location. So it would be very much appreciated to have people support or have them write to the Minister for Planning to, to express your concerns with the Minister for Planning because it all counts. Who's Richard Wynne, of course. And um, we've argued for years, of course, uh, that these environment effects um, processes should be run by an independent, there should be an independent body that runs them 
uh, and and funds everybody. It, they shouldn't be run as they are by the proponent, which is grossly unfair to people like yourself. And you, of course, have to come up with the funding, as you say, to to counter their expert opinions. And uh, mm-hmm. it, the whole process is grossly unfair, in my opinion. Uh, absolutely. And thank you for mentioning that, because that's it's really a significant point. In, in Western Australia, they have that, that sort of system that you're talking about. In, in Victoria, the Environment Effects Act is, is all legislation. It's outdated. Um, it's based on, you know, 1978, I think, is the effective date of the Act. There are different, different values now around the environment, different concerns about what protection should be in place. And this current government process is very much driven by, by the proponent and supports the proponent. There's, there's no um, appeal process. Um, there's no review of this process, which is, and there's so much pressure on community, on the people. I, I feel deeply for the people who are impacted by this. Um, and, and that's why I'm involved in this. Yeah, yeah. we've come to the end of the show. But just another a note, mind-free, Glen Allerdale. And so people can Google that and get more information. Yeah. Okay. And Debbie, we'll get back to you later in the year when the pros, when it's down the track further, so to speak, and uh, and catch up and update ourselves with what's going on. But, but good luck with it all. And uh, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. And thanks for your support in airing this issue. I really appreciate it. Okay. Debbie Carruthers there, who's with, well, Mind Free Glen Allardale is the name of the group. And mm-hmm. uh, and good luck to them. <laughs> let's hope mm. let's hope they have a victory. It's not often we get victories on city limits in these areas, but let's hope they do. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot okay. of submissions for the for the other uh, issue that we had on the show recently about the offshore crib point uh, one. Yeah, yeah, the crib point one. So yeah. hopefully they'll well, get a, a similar response. Well, the two groups are working together, which is good. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and next week it's oh. uh, it's transport, transport, and so mm. we'll. Uh, and we might even talk to, um, if we can get him on the show, Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth, because the state government, a major advance in transport in some ways, the state government in the, since the last um, our last transport day has announced that all public transport in Melbourne, trams and trains, will be run from renewable energy. So that's a major breakthrough, I think. That is good. That's a good yeah, start. Okay. Yeah. And then they should make it free. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And that's next week. That's next week. Okay. It's a month after. Yeah. Okay. All right. See you all then. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account or credit card, and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Hi, 
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.